0: Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he leaves a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, Do not all go to the same place. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life? During the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow, who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone. David. Good evening, everyone.
1: It all not so far away. Let me, uh, let me start with a question. I think you all know how much I love questions. What does the perfect church service look like? Uh, it's a great question. And I think if I opened that up for discussion, uh, we would have quite an interesting one. Uh, and I'm almost tempted to do that. But, you know, those who lead services here at Windsor... That was Alison this morning or Roy this evening. They invest a lot of thought and a lot of uh, prayer into what we do, what we will sing, how we will actually do it. Because they believe and we believe that this time matters, that our corporate worship together is important. And that is the issue or certainly one of the issues that the searcher addresses in the opening section of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Incidentally, here's uh, how C.S. Lewis responded to that question. The perfect church service would be one we were most unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. Wouldn't it be great to come up with answers like that? Uh, And as we're about to see, that actually seems to capture the searchers, Solomon's perspective to some extent. Now, for those who have been with us on Sunday evenings listening to these meaningless messages, question mark, and emphasis on the question mark, you may have noticed as Roy read the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes that there's a change of pace, that there's a real shift in focus. Because up to now, if you've been with us for the first number of weeks, up to now, the searcher Solomon has been taking a look out there taking a look around him, life under the sun. But here, and this this comes as a bit of a shock, he actually steps into church to see how things are going in there. And out there, as he's looked around, he's been left, as we have discovered, with a real sense of despair. Well, now he's taking a look at church. And is it going to be any different? (coughs) Or as he looks into the temple context. And what we are about to discover, and this should come as no surprise, is that Solomon has some significant things to say. Some very relevant things into that time. Some very relevant things 3,000 years later. And what the searcher does is he homes in on our worship of God. The highest activity in which people can engage The very thing that we were created to do, it's been infused into our DNA to worship. Or as Tozer said, worship, and we've looked at this before, worship is the normal employment of moral beings. But before we look at what the searcher actually says about this subject and about this issue, let me just make a couple of points. Worship is about more than what we do just at church. The Bible teaches, and again we've been stressing this recently, that worship is also to do with our work. Worship, in fact, is, to, is related to how we live our lives. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the issue that he addresses, I believe, or certainly one of the issues, is our corporate worship. It's actually what we do together here at 10.30 and 7pm on a Sunday. What we're about to look at actually relates to this very moment, to what we have been doing since 7pm. Secondly, what I want us to know is that the searcher says nothing about the style of our worship when we gather together. Because we all know, and again we have said this before, that most hassles in church regarding worship concern style. So it's whether it's hymn or it's chorus, it's organ, it's guitar, it's liturgy, it's spontaneity, it's Wesley, it's Redmond. We've said this before. It's repeat songs, don't repeat songs, it's stand, it's sit. The list goes on. But the searcher actually says, listen, this is not about style. He takes the issue deeper. And what he really writes is relevant to all worshippers, irrespective of your preferred style. This is about you. It actually gets very personal. So let's look at verse 1. Here's how he starts. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In other words, be careful how you move towards this time. Be careful how you move towards this act of corporate worship. Think about what you're walking into. Think about where you're heading. And what it relates to is our approach before worship and our preparation to worship. Now, I don't know how you prepared for this service. I don't know if you prepared for this service. I kind of had to. And so did Roy. But, you know, if I wasn't involved up here this evening, would I have given much thought to this? Or would I have just turned up? Showed up? You know, worship is about entering... A presence. The presence. Now I know we're never out of God's presence. Psalm 139 makes that crystal clear. Where can I go to flee your presence, David asks. And the answer is nowhere. But in corporate worship, we gather to recognize that presence. To celebrate God's presence. To even become more aware of God's intimate presence with us and hopefully amongst us. Whenever we enter this building, we don't just enter a building. We hopefully enter into the presence of God. We're so aware of that. Because here we are as a group of people gathering together for a very specific purpose. But again, the question is, why are we here? Why did you come this evening? Habit? Ritual? Routine, social event, good chance to critique the speaker, the preacher, or did you come out of a real sense of anticipation, with an expectation that you were coming along with others, and you had no idea how many others or what others, but you were coming to meet with Almighty God and to commune with Him, and I want to suggest that that sense of expectation that sense of anticipation is greatly enhanced via our preparation before worship. So let me ask you, did you guard your steps as you approached this time this evening? Now I know that sometimes getting here, especially on Sunday mornings, is a big enough challenge for many of us. Therefore the thought of time to prepare what does that actually mean? In fact, that's a bridge too far. And we all know that God, in His grace, and because of His grace, He meets us whether we prepare or not, whether we rush in hassled at 10:32, having just fought with everybody we've come across, or whether we arrive 10 minutes early just to still our hearts. But I still believe that the searcher encourages those who go to the house of God to guard their steps. To think through, to get ready for this time when we come together like this. And so let me encourage you, just as we begin this journey, let me encourage you to think through what might it actually look like this week for me to guard my steps as I go to the house of God. Or as I go to this house of God. Prepare to go. Secondly, go to listen. Look at the next part of verse 1. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. Do you know, that is one of the most important reasons for gathering like this. I hope you come to hear from God. It's not about what I say or what Roy says. In fact, it's not about what anybody up front says necessarily. We come to listen carefully and to discern what our Heavenly Father wants to communicate into our hearts. So the question always is we walk away from this place. Have we heard God? Or have we just heard someone's thoughts, views, opinions? And again, I know that God can speak into our lives at any time. God can speak into our lives in any place But sometimes in the midst of our busyness, in a world that is so dominated by a noise, in a context characterized by the sound of so many others' voices demanding our attention, it can be so difficult out there to hear the divine whisper. And a church service like this can or should provide the space, the the opportunity, where outside interference is reduced where distractions decrease, and maybe where the voice of God has a better chance of being heard. Do you know, sometimes I I find myself coming to church to see someone, to speak to someone, to organise something, to check out something. And those reasons can all be valid in and of themselves. But a primary reason for going, says the searcher, is that so you will go near and listen. Preparation, and intention are really important. But what happens when we actually get here? Well, look at verse 2. Now, don't worry. I know we read two chapters and you're thinking, hang on a minute. Verse 2. Like, are we?" We're, this is not going to be an exposition of all two chapters. Okay, don't panic. But look at verse 2. Here's what we do when we get here. Do not be quick with your mouth. Or to put it bluntly, shut up. That's maybe rather inappropriate. The message captured this. the first half of this first. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. Don't shoot off your mouth or speak before you think. Don't be too quick to tell God what you think he wants to hear. Do you know, our natural tendency is to speak, isn't it? Rather than listen. Listening is a much harder discipline. Do you know, even when it comes to prayer, I often just, I just spill everything out. I talk about my needs and my issues and my problems and my difficulties. And I tell God what I think needs to happen in various situations. What he should do. And I know that prayer and a relationship with God, like any relationship, must involve, it's got to involve, two-way communication, but I often talk and I seldom listen. It's all one way and therefore I need to learn to be quiet or to shut up and tune in. I utter so much and I hear so little. And I need to refocus and I need to realign my thinking and I need to re-establish who is God in this relationship. Who is actually in control here? And that's why the next phrase is so good, so challenging. God is in heaven, you are on earth. Now, what that is saying is not that God is a million miles away. What it's saying is that God is God and you are you. Or as Soren Kierkegaard puts it, this is a reminder that there is an infinite qualitative distinction between us and God. I love that. You know, when we come to worship, we draw near to listen to a God who is everything we are not. God who is infinite, we are finite. God is immortal, we are mortal. God is invisible, we are visible. God is spirit, we are flesh. God is almighty, we are weak. God is holy, we are sinners. God is absolutely pure, we are impure. God is unchangeable, we are so fickle. God is faithful, we are so unfaithful at times. God is loving and we at best only know partial love. Do you know we could go on, we have nothing to teach God and yet we have everything to learn. Therefore, Therefore, it's really important to listen. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So what does the searcher say we should do? Let your words be few. You know, lots of words may impress, may even fool others, but not God. I need to really give thought to what I say. I've got to choose my words carefully. Because as he goes on to say in verse 3, the danger of saying lots... The danger of saying many words is that you'll end up saying something foolish. Elsewhere in the writings of Solomon, he says this, The more you talk, the more you're likely to sin. If you're wise, you will keep quiet. The next little section from verse 4 to 6 relates to the issue of making vows. Now, again, there's so many different takes on this. Uh, But because the searcher's been dealing with the subject of corporate worship, I think, let me look at vows that we sometimes make in that context. Have you ever promised God anything in a service like this? Promised to go somewhere? Promised to give more? Promised to pray for that family? Promised to forgive that person? Promised to walk away from that sin. Promised to express more compassion. But the danger is that in the cool light of day, away from the emotion of a moment like this, when we're back to life in the outside world, we sometimes fail to deliver on the promises we've made. And that's not good. And the searcher says, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. In fact, he goes on to say, look, it's far better not to make any promises, any vows, than to make them and then break them. And so often we do make promises in worship. We sing so many of them, actually. But do we actually follow them up? Do I follow them up? He has one more piece of advice before he changes track. But before we hear it, someone has actually described this little section of Ecclesiastes as what every worshipper should know. And here's what every worshipper should know. Prepare for worship. Go near to listen in worship. Remember who it is you come to worship. Reduce the word count during worship. Fulfill any vows you make as you worship. And then the the searcher finishes his look inside the church with a timeless piece of advice. Therefore, stand in awe of God. And you know, I actually want us to do that. I'd like us to just take a break in what I'm sharing and actually do that. I don't have a lot more to share, but I just thought it would be really appropriate for us to just pause and stand in awe of God. You know, Habakkuk would write, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And so can I encourage you to stand with me for a moment? And what I'm going to ask is that maybe some people could lead us in this time by finishing this sentence. And so if you would just like to say, we worship you, God. We stand in awe of you, God, because you are And then just finish that sentence with a word, with a few words. Let me encourage as many people to take part as feel comfortable doing so. But if there's silence, that's okay. Thank you. Worship you, God, because you are God. Amen. Please take your seats. Right, let's let's shift the focus just for the last few moments. Wouldn't it? Another question. an easier one. Wouldn't it be great to have lots of money? It was the uh, it was the Monte Carlo Grand Prix this afternoon. Uh, I didn't see any of it. I saw some of the qualifying yesterday, but you know, Monaco is described as the place which is more about money than any other place in the world making it, spending it, flaunting it. Wouldn't it be great to have enough money to live somewhere like Monaco and to buy into the lifestyle? Well, not necessarily, according to the searcher. And he gives us a few reasons for that perspective, and I really am only touching on stuff here, okay? Those of you who are thinking he really didn't unpack that chapter in any great detail. In fact, he didn't unpack from verse 8 of chapter 5 right to the end of verse, chapter 6 in any great detail. I apologize. Okay, We're just touching in on stuff. But here is why he says, you know, having money is not that great. First reason. Enough is never enough. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. Do you know the massive problem with money is that irrespective of how much you've got, you always want more. Your appetite for the stuff increases, but your level of satisfaction doesn't always rise. Getting more becomes the issue, rather than enjoying what you've got. And that is meaningless. Second reason people with money attract attention, verse 11. Do you know whenever the prodigal had lots of cash, he had lots of friends. Whenever his money ran out... People weren't that interested in them anymore. Do you know, People who win the lottery often opt to remain anonymous. Why? Because if their identity is blown, they will be inundated with people who want to help them spend their fortune. And the searcher writes, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Hangers on will appear from everywhere. Your head will be turned. Money attracts attention. Not always welcomed attention. It's so true. Thirdly, it messes with your sleep pattern. Have a look at verse 12. Do you know, money is a massive source of worry, isn't it? And it seems that the more you have, the more you worry. Anxiety intensifies, insomnia sets in. Now, lots of people have money worries, I know that, and lots of people lose sleep over financial issues. But the searcher seems to be implying is that the rich have a bigger issue with the night than the rest of us. And fourthly, verse 15, it leaves you naked. Because naked you enter the world, and naked you depart. You don't take any of your material wealth or physical possessions with you to the next life. So at the end of the day, what have you actually gained? In fact, in the grand scheme of things, riches are rather meaningless. Because this life, viewed from an eternal perspective, is so frighteningly short. That investing all your time and energy into getting more and more here and now is actually rather pointless in the grand scheme of things. Now the searcher doesn't have a problem with money, and we all know the Bible doesn't have a problem with money either. The issue for both the searcher and the Bible is our attitude to money. It's our level of commitment to it. Whenever money becomes a God, whenever it usurps God's position in our life, that's when all the problems kick in. But whenever God is at the centre of our lives, whenever God is the primary and sole object of our worship, then money takes its proper place in our lives and it becomes a gift to enjoy. And that's what the searcher is saying here. And that's really the sentiments of verses 18 to 20 at the end of chapter 5. So it is good, he says, for a man to eat and drink and enjoy his work. We've raised this issue before. It is good to do that. It's good to enjoy the good things in life. Even wealth, even possessions. But whatever you do, don't forget their source. Don't forget where they have come from. It's God who gives. Those are gifts of the good God. So receive them with thanksgiving and use them wisely. And after that burst of brief optimism, the searcher is then back to considering more evils under the sun as he goes into chapter 6. And again, it's all regarding money. And there is a sense of repetition here. Not just repetition as to what he's been saying in chapter 5, but repetition as to what he's been saying actually during the first four chapters of this book. And so I'm not going to say much more, but the overriding lesson is this. Enjoyment is never guaranteed as a result of having things of having an abundance of possessions, of having lots of money. Enjoyment is instead a gift. And it's a gift that comes from God. You can have loads of money and no joy, but you can also have money and joy. Follow this. Alternatively, you can have no money and no joy, or no money and yet incredible joy. So the issue is not money. It's never money. Cash and things don't make the difference. God makes the difference in your life. Whether you have or you have not. And the sooner you discover that difference, says the searcher, the better. And he goes on to say, you can have a big family. You can have six all at once. You can have a big family. You can live long, according to verse 3. But without the gift of enjoyment, those things actually won't mean much to you. You can try to find joy via your own efforts. And so many people are. In fact, you can work really hard. This is what he said. You can work really hard at trying to find joy. But unless God gives you it, and unless you receive it as a gift, then effectively you're wasting your time. And one of the core issues and almost the central theme of this entire chapter is brought out in verse 9. Take a look at it. Brilliant phrase. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. It was Mark Twain who said this. To be satisfied with what one has, that's wealth. As long as one sorely needs a certain additional amount, that man isn't rich. And that is it in a nutshell. Be content. Be content with what you have. It may not be much when you compare yourself with others. But listen, that doesn't exclude you from happiness. That doesn't rule out the possibility of a great life. That doesn't mean you can't experience enjoyment, contentment, and fulfillment. Those things can never be purchased. They come. As gifts from God. Contentment in a material world is a tough call. There's no doubt about that. But if money and abundance of possessions, status and success are what you're banking on. What the world is banking on to provide contentment. Then the searcher says, you may end up frustrated. And you will end up extremely disillusioned. And there are countless examples of people like that in our society today. So when it comes to corporate worship, think through what you're engaging in. And when it comes to money,
0: be content. Don't buy into the myth that exists out there.